about the right structural arrangement for his people. And I think, I think you should share my joy in that. Maybe I've not convinced you yet, but I'm going to try. So first, we should be glad that God has not left us to figure out our church's structure. If we look around the world, right? Just take a quick thought about the globe at the various forms of political government. I actually dread to think what we would have done if we had been left to design how the church worked. Further, it is wonderful that God explained the way that the new covenant administration of the the one covenant of grace changed the judicial, the, the disciplinary design of God's people so that we would not inflict things beyond our authority. People can be uh, grudge holders, and we have limits on what we can do as the church for our good. Now, Old Testament political laws, right? They made the point that God's people need to be distinct, and they and guard their holiness with trustworthy means. That's one of the things going on in why God explained how they should handle issues in the in the God-overseen state. But now that God's people are limited to one national body and are not supposed to be tied to any political body, it is good that the Scripture explains how we are to administer care of our specific collection of people now that we don't have the power of political enforcement as the church so that we don't presume to think we still have the authority of the state or have the right to use means of coercion. We'll think about that a bit more. But but here's the thing. So as we come to chapter 5, we see Paul shifts topics slightly to issues of discipline in the congregation. So in chapters 1 to 4, if you remember... He addressed divisions that had formed in the Corinthian congregation. And he put them in their place for creating disunity in the body of Christ. And chapters 5 and 6 seem to extend some of those issues so that we can say the whole of chapters 1 to 6 is about this crisis of authority. And Paul was trying to realign the Corinthians to his apostolic authority, which in fact was genuine and was from Christ, where others had hijacked authority for their own repute. So, okay, this sermon's title is The Narrow Goal of Church Discipline, which uh, means to suggest that there is also a wider goal of church discipline. And what's going on there is, whereas verses 1 to 5 consider what church discipline meant to accomplish for the individual under discipline, verses 6 to 13 explain what it intends to achieve for the whole congregation. So that's what's going on there. And in this sermon, we're going to focus on how Verses 1 to 5 explain to us the method and the purpose of discipline in regards to the individual. So, the main point is that we should be committed to our congregation's holiness to ensure our members know salvation. 
We should be committed to our congregation's holiness to ensure our members know salvation. We're going to think about it in three points. The principle, the practice, and the point. So, the principle. Right, this passage transitions from Paul's preceding discussion about divisions to another issue that, if you remember back to chapter 1, verse 11, Chloe's people reported to him. And this one concerns the acceptance of sexual immorality. The church is sadly familiar with discovering scandals among its members. But this instance was particularly heinous because immorality was tolerated. So verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. So essentially what happened here, someone married his stepmother. Whether his father had died or she had divorced his father is actually own, but it didn't matter really because it was an immoral thing and the Corinthians tolerated it. So there are a couple of really fascinating aspects behind this verse that draw out some important things. So first, just to give you some historical background here, Paul wasn't making it up when he said the pagans did not permit this sort of behavior. So there was this famous guy named Gaius, and he was kind of the foremost Roman jurist of his period, this period, and he compiled Roman law into this book called The Institutes. It sounds really fascinating, right? Uh, it's not, but in that book, we find that Romans, for the Romans, it was unlawful to marry a step-parent. So Paul was serious that they had not just overstepped God's law that his people should know, but they had ethically left the reservation altogether even as pagans knew better than what they were doing. The second point addresses how those pagans could know better and how the Corinthians should have known better. So, I think this is really cool. I like this whole thing that's going on here. So Paul drew from Leviticus 18 particularly verses 7 and 8. Now you see why we read that. Let me just read these two verses again to you. So verses 7 and 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. So the Mosaic law, in other words, condemned sexual contact with your mother or your father's wife of any capacity, whether you were married to her even after his death or or not. It's just not permitted. And Paul's use of the Levitical law here flags something really important for understanding the whole Bible. So we're about to take a, a dive into how the whole Bible fits together. So traditionally, the church has categorized the, the Old Testament law into three sorts. 
Okay, so we've got the moral law that was built into creation and then summarized in the Ten Commandments. And then we've got the ceremonial law that governed Israel's religious practices. And then we've got the third type, the civil law that governed Israel's social and political life. Now, a lot of people dismiss every command. I mean, I'm talking about Christians. So a lot of Christians will dismiss every command outside the Ten Commandments as if they can scrub away the Old Testament entirely as legalistic. And usually they end up getting to some of the Ten Commandments too. Paul seemed to disagree with that to some degree. And we need to think about that. So since he applied this phrase, his father's wife, from Leviticus 18.8, to the situation in Corinth. What we see is there are complicated layers to the validity for us of the Mosaic law than just the Ten Commandments and everything else. Now there is certainly a sense where this sexual immorality falls somewhere under the umbrella of the seventh commandment, right? Against adultery. But we have to say a bit more than that here since Paul used Leviticus, perhaps a book most full of things that Christ entirely replaced since since much belonged to that ceremonial law, the, the religious rights of Israel, which we know, what we should know, that Christ fulfilled. Now, here's a really important thing. Okay, before we get anywhere further, be, hear me say this, right? Be sure, be sure the church no, cannot, does not have the right to enforce the penalties belonging to Israel's civil law. The penalties are not ours to use. Okay, we don't buddy up to the state. We don't use coercion. We don't use political means of discipline because God's people are now bound to word and sacrament as disciplinary means. But Paul, under the Spirit's inspiration, thought that Parts of the civil law's requirements were still binding in some way. And how do we explain that? And I probably take too much delight, more happier than a Presbyterian should be, to quote probably something that's never been quoted from the Westminster Confession to you. So chapter 19.4. To them all, as a body politic, so as a political body, To them all, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people of Israel, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Right, what is that? God gave a a set of political laws to Israel, that's the gist of it, that no longer obligate any state. But, so all the political laws expired, they no longer obligate any state, but there are principles of general equity that have not expired. I think it's a fascinating distinction that our confession makes that, so the political laws were not fulfilled, 
or abrogated uh, as the ceremonial laws were, but they expired with the nation of Israel. So things like further explanations of sexual immorality, which, which have a summary starting point in the Ten Commandments, they're still valid, even if we can't enforce the penalties that were tied to them. So the Old Testament isn't entirely obsolete for us, but, but gives us extended wisdom about how to keep God's law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. So then, we can explain how these general equity laws correspond to both God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, and how the Romans figured this out some way too. How did they know about it? And we're going to use Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, the written law, by nature do what the law requires, though they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the written law. So God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, it didn't, and this is really crucial, it didn't originate at Sinai, but it was built into you at creation. This natural law that God hardwired into you as someone made in His image, it's something He made you with. You know as the image of God, what his character is. And the point of this, I, I know that it's kind of a deep dive into biblical theology, but the point is, the, is to emphasize in a day when we're under suspicion of this is, is that the church discipline is not about enforcing things that we just invented and forced upon others, But it's about upholding the very way that God created us to be in His image. So this is about upholding true humanity. The principle by which church discipline works is God's law, which reflects His character. That brings us to our second point, the practice. And things are, I think, easier from here on out. So we saw that God built his law in humanity, is made in his image. He, he summarized it, that law and the Ten Commandments. And he explained some of the abiding principles uh, in Israel civil law, which underscored, yeah, the point of that was how heinous it was that the Corinthians were allowing this immorality to occur among their church. And this point examines what the church must do once they see someone that is violating the principles of God's law, what do we do? So verse 2. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, chapter 1 to 4, chapters 1 to 4, were clear that some of the Corinthians had grown proud as they aligned themselves with with whomever they thought was the most prestigious teacher that had come through the congregation. So, Paul here flipped that against them by pointing out that it is shocking that they, of all people, would have any arrogance since they are so corrupt as to allow things that even pagans forbid. 
Why should they be arrogant? They should be mourning. They should not think well of themselves, but should mourn over the state of their community. He said that this mourning should work out in removing, excommunicating, the offending member. So, Charles Hodge, the best theologian America has produced to date, noted on these verses that every society actually has the right to decide the criteria for its membership and and determine whether someone meets the standards. And, And we should mark that point that societies have this inherent right and our standards are defined by God's word. Because the world outside, here's why we need to, to pay really good attention to this. The world outside and liberalizing Christians constantly tell us today that they get to decide. They get to tell us who belongs to our church. And some seem to think that the church is no longer a community that's supposed to promote holiness, but as a group that's supposed to find a way to cheer for every ungodless decision under the banner of love and human flourishing. And so isn't it significant that this passage tonight is about how the church needs to remove someone who has entered into an illegitimate marriage that has resulted in sexual immorality? That person had to repent and abandon that relationship? to be restored to the community. And so then the church needs to be a community committed to making sure that we uphold holiness in marriage. Verses 3 to 5 spell out how to excommunicate the person. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul was their spiritual authority and was telling them that the community... Now here's this, yeah, we're going to get excited about being Presbyterian again. Note, it's the community, it's not a bishop, but the community, which is Presbyterians, believe the church community acts together as it's represented in its elders. So the community needed to remove the person. Paul wrote this letter because he was not physically present, but he was spiritually present. There's so much debate about what that means, but here's what I think is is the best understanding, and it makes really clear sense, that being spiritually present is, is about how the apostolic authority to render verdict did not depend upon his bodily presence, which is important, right? So, so the apostles, the apostolic word did not have to have an apostle present for church discipline to take effect as is the case now 
among the church, right? It can, church discipline can be enacted through God's Word by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to have an apostle among us. And verse 4 makes this really evident when Paul linked his spiritual presence with Christ's power in the gathered church. So then, during worship, as indicated by being gathered in Jesus' name, the offender is to be publicly excommunicated. So the practice is to break official ties with anyone who refuses to submit, not struggles to submit, refuses to submit to the Lord Christ. And that brings us to our third point, the point. So, we have seen that those who would blatantly defy God's law must be removed from the church with the authority of Christ as administered through the apostolic word, which is the scripture. And verse 5 explains why we enact church discipline. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, delivering a person to Satan in this verse simply means to put them back in Satan's jurisdiction as the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4. 4. So, excommunicants are no longer under Christ's covenant banner, but they belong to the devil's kingdom. This person is delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which states, so this is the exalt, the result that they expect, even though the hoped for purpose is his repentance. So let me, let me illustrate this, right? If I, if I pick up my water glass and I say, I'm gonna drop this unto its shattering, with the hopes that it, I'm going to put it down, just in case it's too, uh, I'm going to drop this unto its shattering, but with the hopes that it will bounce back into my hand. Right. So I have a of a purpose of it bouncing back, which is possible, but it's really unlikely. And so to pull that back to our text, the expectation and purpose in excommunication works along the same lines, we often expect the most likely outcome, sadly, is that the removed person we anticipate will continue as an apostate to be destroyed forever. But we hope, but we hope that this extreme action will wake them up to repent and return to Christ, as as the final phrase of verse 5 makes clear, is our hope that they will be saved on the last day. So the point of negative church discipline, because there is positive church discipline, right? Word and sacrament are meant to build you up in the faith, equip you for holiness, like going to the gym training disciplines your body. Those things are meant to discipline you positively. Negative church discipline is that we're not interested in affirming people as we are, but in taking measures to see that people stand right with God at the last day. 
That's the point. So we see that church discipline is actually about guarding people's eternal salvation. It's not about being mean. It's about doing everything we can to push people to Christ. We refuse to affirm people in any and everything precisely because we love them. Right? We're supposed to mourn over this, aren't we? We're concerned with Christ's reputation as we cannot let our behavior tarnish His glory before the world. But we are also concerned with people that we don't pave their road to hell if they had never had true faith that manifests itself in sanctification, which is why we don't affirm everything that everyone does. So, the important thing, though, is that whether you have never become a Christian, whether you are a Christian trapped in sin right now, or whether you are walking imperfectly but faithfully at this moment, the next step for you all is the same. Church discipline uh, is negative and positive forms, is not about administration, but is about this main thing of prompting us to flee to Jesus Christ, which is what we all must do. Wherever we are, we find ourselves needing the Lord Jesus. We need Him to rescue us from our sins. We need Him to be our rock and our salvation. We need Him to be our refuge in times of trial and struggle. We need Him to be the one who comes alongside us and carries us when we can't carry ourselves. We need Him to be the one who equips us to walk with Him in this world, whatever it may present to us on a daily basis. We must flee to the Christ who died to forgive our sin, rose to guarantee our heavenly citizenship, and sent us His Holy Spirit to help us walk in newness of life. Let's turn to Him now in prayer. Our triune God, we do bless your name, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have provided such a great redemption, planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Spirit, and that not only have you rescued us at a personal level, but that you have rescued us into a community, and you have told us, you've not left us to make it up, you have told us how this community works, and we give you thanks for it. And we pray that we would be sober and responsible about this, that, they would, that we would see that this is a grievous matter that's presented before us in the Scripture, and that it would prompt us to be diligent in guarding our community, even within ourselves, not, not as the community, but even as persons that we would care about our holiness for the sake of your name that we might glorify you well, live for you in this world, and find you saying, well done, good and faithful servant at the last day. We give you thanks for our salvation, for being our refuge, and we ask that you would give us your spirit, that we might walk with you well this week, built up in faith,
sent out to do good. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.